open with me this morning to Luke 18, and we're going to be in verses 31 through 43. And as you open up to that, you know, one of the ways that, that skeptics have attacked the faith throughout history has been by denying that Jesus' sufferings were planned and purposeful. You know, they, they would argue that Jesus just rocked the boat too much and that he ended up getting himself killed for it. You know, that, that really, that his death and resurrection, or they wouldn't believe in his resurrection, they would believe that his death was a tragic and unfortunate, bad ending for his life, but not, not something that he planned. Of course, we all here this morning, we know that nothing could be further from the truth. You know, we know that the whole trajectory of Jesus' life was prophesied 700 years before, and it included every aspect of him as the Messiah. You know, as uh, my Old Testament professor in seminary would always tell us, Dr. McKenzie, you know, he would say often that, you know, remind us that we have a full gospel presentation right there in the Old Testament. You know, that the New Testament, of course, it, it, it's wonderful, and it, and, it, and it really, I mean, we have a very, very specific gospel presentation that we have throughout the New Testament. But he said, if you had just the Old Testament, you would have a full gospel presentation right there. And I say this because it reminds us that Jesus' death was not an accident. No, this was the plan. And Jesus knew it. He knew exactly how his life would end, right down to the most minute detail. And he had known it since before the foundation of the world, when the plan of salvation was formed. The heart of the Christian faith is in the death of Jesus Christ. And this passage that we're about to read, it's the third and it's the most complete of, of Jesus' specific predictions about his death that are recorded in the book of Luke. His words here anticipate his suffering on the cross and they anticipate his resurrection. You know, they reveal the plan, the proportions, the power over, and the perceptions of his suffering. And so let's read Luke 18, verses 31 through 43. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. 
You know, this path, the path that the disciples must take, sacrificing everything for Jesus, it is exemplified supremely by Jesus himself. You know, as we've been walking through Luke, we have seen that Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem since chapter 9. And now Jesus takes aside his 12 disciples and he informs them, again, for the third time of what is to come. You know, the Jews will give him over to the Gentiles and they will treat him with scorn. They will flog him. They will put him to death. But after he has been put to death, he will rise from the dead. His destiny is not some accident or a mistake of some kind. He is going to Jerusalem to fulfill what is written about the Son of Man. Everything that is recorded in the prophets is being worked out in the ministry of Jesus. And now, I do want to spend some time you know, really quickly on the term son of man. Because this is a term that is used over 70 times in the Gospels for Jesus. And interestingly, son of man is not a name that others gave to Jesus, but this is a name that he gave to himself. And it comes from Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with, clouds, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You know, we see here in in verses 31 through 34 that Jesus is the Son of Man. And by that, we're saying he is the eternal sovereign king. You know, this is what Jesus is saying here. Jesus claimed to be the transcendent being of Daniel's vision. And he used son of man as a substitute for the personal pronoun I again and again. And he especially used this term when he spoke of himself to his disciples. And so his disciples would have heard this term a lot. They would have heard it many times. And we also know, as he does right here, that Jesus regularly spoke about his coming death. For example, after Peter's great confession, Jesus explicitly said in in Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Jesus was equally clear uh, in Luke 9, 44, after he healed the boy with an evil spirit, saying, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And in our passage, as his journey to Jerusalem was was kind of winding down, and the end was only a few days away, we read in verses 31 to 33, and taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked. He'll be shamefully treated. He'll be spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. But on the third day, he will rise. You know, we see, and, and Jesus knew, he's telling his disciples, he is going to Jerusalem not to be crowned as king. 
He is going to Jerusalem to be delivered to the Gentiles. This entire picture is one of great suffering. You know, suffering from the disloyalty of friends. It's suffering from injustice. It's suffering from deliberate insult and physical pain. And it is suffering from great humiliation and degradation. And so knowing their fears, Jesus here reassures his disciples that God's plan would be fulfilled. And that all things that were written through the prophets about the Son of Man were going to be accomplished. His death would be the culmination of the divine redemptive purpose of God. The cross is the primary event in the redemptive history. It's the primary event in all of history. But as clear as Jesus was about his impending suffering and death and resurrection, his disciples, they just didn't get it. They still didn't understand it. And you think about it, have you ever had like your mind so set on something, so set on an idea or a belief that, you know, you would hear someone and they maybe would say something to the contrary of that, but you would kind of take out what they said that kind of goes with what you believe and kind of leave out the rest? And you don't necessarily do that intentionally. But the disciples had such an idea of what was going to happen. You know, the Jewish people had such a, a mindset of, of what the Messiah was going to look like, that when here you have Jesus, the, the Son of God, telling them, hey, here is exactly what's going to happen, and I'm going to tell you this several times. It goes right over their heads. And we can look as we read the Gospels and be like, how did you not get it? But it's, it's a great benefit to have the, entire, the entirety of Scripture right at our fingertips. And we look at this, the disciples and be like, how did you not get it? But you know, we, we know that it, it would have been really easy for them not to have gotten it because their mindset was on something else. You know, Luke emphasizes this three times in verse 34 that they didn't understand it. He says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And he says that they did not grasp what was said. You know, they had been with Jesus nearly every day for three years, you know, like three years, night and day, they've been with Jesus. They now are in you know, Passion Week, like, or just about into Passion Week, they still don't understand what's about to occur. And so we ask, why? And Emil Scherer summarizes really well what the Jewish people's expectations were in the coming Messiah and the establishing of his kingdom. And as he lays this out, it makes it really, you know, a lot easier to understand just how the disciples were able to hear exactly laid out what was going to happen and still miss it. Because the Jewish people believed that, you know, the Messiah's coming would be preceded by a time of tribulation. And then in the midst of that turmoil, an Elijah-like prophet would appear heralding his coming, you know, heralding the coming of the Messiah. Then they thought that the Messiah would establish his kingdom and vindicate his people. Then the nations would ally themselves together to fight the Messiah. The Messiah would destroy all the opposing nations. And Jerusalem would then be restored. It would be made new and glorious. The dispersed Jews scattered all over the world would return to Israel. And Israel would become the center of the world. All of the nations would be subjugated by the Messiah. And then finally, they believed that the Messiah would establish his kingdom, which would be a time of eternal peace and righteousness and glory. 
So as you see, that's a rather lengthy list of expectations that they would have had. And all of this is to say there was no place in Jewish messianic theology for a sacrificed or a dead or even a risen Messiah. And so it can seem insane to us that the disciples wouldn't understand what Jesus is telling them here. But it's because it failed to fit into their messianic theology. And when Jesus comes along and he says that he will triumph through suffering and death, you know, that, they can't comprehend that. Because everything he says about suffering contradicts their view of the world. And yet, Jesus' death and resurrection are the path to victory and triumph. And of course, we know that the disciples did eventually come to understand what Jesus was telling them. They came to believe it, and they came to preach it. And we know that because through their faithfulness and the faithfulness of, of Christians throughout the centuries, you know, believing, you know, or understanding, believing, and preaching the gospel, we are here today worshiping our risen Savior on the other side of the world. But at this point in the narrative, they were blind to what Jesus is telling them. And the immediately following story of Christ's healing of the blind man stands in dramatic contrast of the incomprehension of the twelve. You know, their spiritual blindness was reproved by the blind sight of a beggar. As we move on into this next part of the passage in verses 35 through 39, we see a blind beggar's call for mercy. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, we see a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And we know from Mark's gospel that his name was Bartimaeus. The day would have begun just like any other day for, for this blind man. He would have woken up, he would have shaken the straw from his shabby, torn garments, would have stretched. And everybody stretches when they wake up. He got to his feet, and he would, have been get, he would have begun tapping his way along the familiar turns leading to the main gate of Jericho. Now, it's important to note here that the blind were despised, and they were reduced to begging because um, in that culture, their condition was considered to be God's judgment either on you know, their sin or you know, the sin of, of their fathers. Could you imagine this? You know, you're, you're blind. That's bad enough. On top of that, you're blind back in that context, back you know, a, a long time ago. It's, it's, it's a hard life. But on top of that, you're also hated because everybody sees you in your blindness. Everybody sees you in your desperation. And their first thought is, well, he had it coming. He must have done something to deserve this. So you're blind and you're hated. And arriving at the gate, he, he would have taken his regular place with the other beggars. And as he sat there, just like you know, so many days before, he would listen as the city would come to life. You know, a donkey loaded with melons for, for the market would come by, or women bringing pitchers toward the well, the clomp of camel's hooves, all, all the familiar sounds of the city coming to life and, you know, getting ready to, you know, to beg for, for money or for food, you know, happening just like every other day. And so soon Jericho abounded with sounds of life. This blind man was giving his beggar's cry. 
But suddenly the day would have started to look different than the normal day. Because this blind man hears this great crowd going by. And that's not the norm. And so he asks, what was going on? And a passerby tells him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And the blind man had likely you know, heard first-person accounts from those who had maybe heard Jesus or even maybe seen his power. And messianic speculation was very high among the Jews in the first century. And so, you know, perhaps the blind man had heard that Jesus called himself the Son of Man, that he had the right bloodline, that he was from the tribe of Judah. And with amazing blind sight, the beggar comes to the conclusion that Jesus must be the Messiah. The blind man was jostled. You know, Jesus would soon be gone, and so he had to do something. And so he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front, again, remember, they, you know, the culture would have hated, you know, this blind man. They would have hated Bartimaeus, and so they rebuke him. They tell him to be silent. But that doesn't work. He cries out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. He's desperate. It was impossible for him to press through the crowd, especially considering his blindness, but he made himself heard. And William Barclay, he points out that there's a difference in the ancient Greek words that are used to to describe the action of the blind man here in verses 38 and 39. The Greek shows his great desperation because in verse 38 it says he cries out. And so this would have been an ordinary loud shout to attract attention. But in verse 39, it says he cried out all the more. And so this would have been the instinctive cry of ungovernable emotion. This would have been a scream, almost like an animal cry. It's desperate. It is loud. He was frantic. He was desperate. Have you ever been just absolutely desperate for help. You know, when I was in, when I was in third grade, I, I went to a, a birthday party for my friend, my friend Vikas, and they, we went laser tagging, okay? Um, and so we go in, and, you know, I, I'm sure I was terrible at laser tag, but we went in, we had a good time, but the guy that, like, brought us down there, his name was Marshall, and he said, okay, look, when, when the game ends, the lights are going to turn on and everyone's going to leave. But if, like, you can't find your way out, because it's kind of like a maze. It says, if you can't find your way out and the lights turn off, just yell, Marshall, Marshall, Marshall. And I'll hear you and I'll come and I'll help you guys find your way out. And, look, I, I, was, I was an anxious child, okay? And so, it's just the truth. And so the game ends and everyone leaves and I can't find my way out. I'm with my friend Vikas and, and you know, and I think one other person from the birthday party. It was, it was a long time ago. But we can't find our way out. And then starting to panic. And then the lights turn out. And then I start to really panic. And so we're yelling, Marshall, Marshall, Marshall. And we hear nothing. And so then, you know, and eight years old, this is as bad as it gets. And so I am screaming at the top of my lungs, Marshall, Marshall, Marshall. And, and, and I'm desperate. And nothing is happening. And so eventually we find an emergency exit. And we just leave. We go out. We're in like the back of the building somewhere. We go back around. And I, I, I would say I never played laser tag again. But I finally did get over that. And coming, it wasn't until I came to Seaford 
that I ever played laser tag again, and it was only because the youth peer pressured me. <laughs> because I, that, I had that experience, and I was like, I'm never doing that again. I don't care how old I am. doesn't matter. I'm not laser tagging because it was horrible. But in that moment, nothing mattered to me besides getting out of there. It didn't matter that the next game was starting up. I mean, logically, the next game would have started. I would have just followed them out. That would have made sense. But I didn't think about that. It didn't matter that I could have opened this emergency exit and set off an alarm. I didn't care. All that mattered was that I was desperate and that I needed to get out of there and never play laser tag again. I tell that story because, you know, great desperation. And it's kind of sad, but I can make fun of myself because I've been here a while now. But the people, the people around Bartimaeus, they tried, to, they tried to shut him up. You know, it wasn't like I was there in laser tag and I, he was yelling, Marshall, 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 and everyone's yelling at me, be quiet, you'll figure it out. You know, they, but here, Bartimaeus is blind. He is desperate. That's an actually bad situation that's going on. And he is desperate, and they're saying, be quiet, you're making a scene. You know, the blind were already despised. Now he's annoying the crowd. So they told him to be silent, but he didn't care because he was desperate. And so he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And if we turn down kind of the volume of the situation for a moment and reflect on what was implicit in Bartimaeus' conduct, we see that his cries got him everything. He was full of blind sight. And the blind man shows us three things here. He shows us his condition. He shows us that he sees Jesus. And he shows persistence. The man knew that he was blind and in perpetual darkness. He knew that there was no hope for him besides a, a divine miracle. You know, there's only one thing that is worse than blindness. And that is not knowing that you're blind. You know, Pastor Eric Reed, who is, um, he's a pastor over in, in Tennessee, um, and he was preaching at a youth camp that I took my youth to eight years ago. And he said something that I've probably quoted here in the pulpit before, but because it's something that really stuck with me. And he said that there is nothing more dangerous than someone that thinks they're saved, but they're really not. You know, they, people that think that they can see. But in reality, they are completely and utterly blind, blissfully blind. It's extremely dangerous. Yet so many in our world are blind to their darkness. They're blind. We're blind to our sin. We're blind to our hopelessness. And we all can be tempted to kind of desensitize ourselves to our sin because it's messy. It's not comfortable. It's easier to kind of put it away and not think about it. Or justify it. To be blissfully blind to it. But what a grace it is to see reality. You know, even when it's hard. Because when we see what we are, when we can't escape the truth, when we are surrounded by the darkness and we know it, the darkness of our hearts, that is when we ask for the light. The blind man's pitiful cry, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It came from a profound self-understanding, and it brought grace into his soul. 
And Christ rejoices to engage such reality. The blind man believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and he was shouting it. And this was something that would have been dangerous to do within hearing of the Romans, but he did not care. He was so sure that Jesus could heal him. And here we see the blind had sight. He thought about Christ, and he came to an exalted biblical view of him, realizing his own darkness and his need for who Jesus was. Bartimaeus showed passionate persistence. He rejected the crowd's control, shouting again and again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And understanding something of who Jesus was and understanding his own personal need, he kept saying it over and over like a helpless infant. Only a few days earlier, Jesus had said regarding children, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The man was coming to Jesus like a small child who was well aware of his helplessness and his dependence. And the blind man's extreme sense of urgency reveals what should be in our souls. In the Old Testament, the Lord instructed his people in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And in the New Testament, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Spiritual blessings don't go to the half-hearted, but go to those who want them above all else. As helpless as he was, Bartimaeus went for it, and God heard him. And in verses 40 through 43, we see Jesus' response. As Jesus stepped or stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. You know, the final stop was Jerusalem. This is just 17 miles away. I mean, as we said, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem since chapter 9. Now, the final stop is 17 miles away. But Jesus made time for this poor beggar. Jesus stood still. On the one hand, nothing could have stopped Christ from finishing his mission. No opposition, no pleading uh, by loving, ignorant friends, no protesting Peter. But the humble cry of a needy blind man stopped him. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What a window into the heart of Christ. He is alive today doing in a far more exalted fashion the things that he did while here on earth. He is instantly attentive to all of our cries. Even when a million of us beggars cry to him at the same time. The heart's cry you know, of one in need is far sweeter to Christ than the shallow hallelujahs of a crowd. Now, let me ask you this morning, you know, are you hurting? Do you feel helpless? If so, understand that your plea will be sweet to his ears. Mark's gospel adds in Mark 10, 49 through 50, that Jesus stopped And said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. The instant 
that the beggar heard Jesus' invitation, he stopped shouting and he threw off his cloak. And throwing off your cloak, look, you're already in a crowd, but here, he's a blind man. Like, this is an extreme gesture, gesture from this blind man who would normally keep his cloak, you know, close at all times. It's not like if he throws it off, he can find it. But he throws off his cloak. He springs to his feet and he stumbles with the help of others to Jesus. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus responds, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus says to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And we see that immediately he recovers his sight and he follows him glorifying God. And all of the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And here we see the same pronouncement that was made to the woman in Luke 7, the woman, uh, the woman with the 12-year uh, hemorrhage in Luke 8, and the Samaritan leper who was healed in Luke 17. That is, your faith has made you well. The blind man is healed of his blindness, but at the same time, he is saved spiritually. He realizes and confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the son of David, that Jesus is the hope of Israel. We see that he is truly saved as he immediately follows Jesus on the road to Calvary, and he gives glory to God. The people, upon seeing the miraculous and astonishing healing, also give great praise to God. You know, the man was blind at the beginning of Jesus' sentence, and at the end of the sentence, he sees. There was no surgery. There were no bandages. It was boom, sight, instantly. The first thing that he saw was the face of Jesus. And Jesus tells him, your faith has made you well. Christ had responded to the blind man's understanding of his own darkness, his penetrating assessment of Christ, and his persistence. Jesus came to the beggar when he couldn't find, when he couldn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to him. He called forth his faith. You know, what were the disciples meant to learn from this event? You know, what are we to learn from the blind sight, the marvelous spiritual vision of Bartimaeus? There's a few things. First, we must see our need. And the man knew that he was blind, and he articulated it. You know, in verse 41, he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. You know, this morning, are, are, are you blind to your sin or to your need of Christ? You know, maybe you're a believer, maybe you're a Christian, but your sin has blinded your eyes to what Christ is asking of you. Let me encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart. And the second thing that we learn here is, once we see our need, we need to see who Jesus is. He is the Son of Man, whom all peoples and all nations will worship, and whose kingdom and dominion will never end. He is the Son of David, 
the deliverer who will fulfill everything that King David foreshadowed. He is the Savior, Christ, the King. The third thing we learn is that we need to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Seeing our need and seeing who Jesus really is, we are to cry out in faith, have mercy on me. Ultimately, the Lord rewards us with himself. In all of his giving and answering of prayer, in the end, we will receive Christ. In verses 31 through 34, Jesus once again told his disciples exactly what was going to happen. He would die and he would raise again in accordance to the scriptures. They missed it. But the blind man had faith. He saw Jesus. He, he, he saw his need. He knew it. It was evident to him. He saw who Jesus was, who Jesus truly was. And he cried out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Way back in verse 8, Jesus asked, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? And that's the question that comes to us now. Are we people who believe? Are we people who trust in Him? You know, looking at ourselves this morning, do you see yourself in your need? Do you see Jesus? And have you cried out to Him, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me? He rewards those who seek Him. And so if you haven't yet, let me encourage you. Call on his name and be saved. Call out for mercy and he will answer you. Ask for the gifts of repentance and faith. Consider his love for you, proven through the crucifixion of his son. Meditate on the righteousness that God offers through Jesus' resurrection. And then ask for saving faith so that you would be found in Christ on the day of His coming. Confess your sin, repent and believe, and the hope of seeing Jesus will be yours. At this time, we're going to close in prayer and worship. But if you would like to talk more about this, talk more you know, uh, about the gospel, you know, please let me encourage you, see myself, you know, I'll be after the service at the Meet the Pastor table. See Pastor Ben. Or even email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. But we would love to talk to you about Jesus. Let's pray. And God, again, we, we 